from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with La Jamaya a Baha'i who started out being a teacher, then discovered the performer within her while working at the Baha'i UN office in New York, and is back to being a teacher in Arizona. But before I play this interview, I would like to play a speech by Congressman Kirk. On July 30, 2008, Congressman Kirk of Illinois spoke on the House floor in support of his Resolution Number 1008, condemning Iran for its persecution of the Baha'is. The resolution overwhelmingly passed the House of Representatives. Here is Congressman Kirk of Illinois speaking on the House floor on July 30th. Government's recognized. Thank, thank the gentleman. Uh, Mr. Speaker, I co-authored this resolution with Rob Andrews as a call to action for the safety of the Baha'i faithful. Never have followers of a more peaceful or gentle creed faced a more cruel and unjust tormentor. Founded in the mid-19th century in Persia, the Baha'i faith now extends to every country, including our own. But its faithful are most numerous in the place of its origin, now the modern-day Iran. The European Parliament has spoken out on this issue, and so we now add our voice as supporters of international human rights and the home of many Baha'i faithful here in America. We have looked at a terrible situation unfolding in Iran. While Iranian Baha'is have suffered for many decades, their repression has grown significantly in the past few years. In 2006, Iran's Armed Forces Command Headquarters ordered their Ministry of Information and the Revolutionary Guard and the police to identify all members of the Baha'i faith in Iran and to begin to monitor their activities. That same year, we saw the largest roundup of Baha'is. The Iranian Interior Ministry ordered provincial officials to cautiously and carefully monitor and then begin to manage all Baha'i activities. The Central Security Office of Iran's Ministry of Science, Research, and Technology ordered 81 Iranian universities to expel any student discovered of being a Baha'i. In 2007, the situation worsened. More than two-thirds of Baha'is enrolled in universities were expelled once they were identified. Police entered Baha'i homes and businesses to collect details on family members. Twenty-five industries were ordered to deny licenses to Baha'is, and employers were pressured to fire Baha'i employees and banks uh, and were told to refuse loans to Baha'i-owned businesses. As we heard before, Baha'i cemeteries were also destroyed. Now, in November of 2007, three Baha'i youths, uh, Ms. Rahat Sabat, 
Mr. Sasan Takba, and Ms. Hale Ruhi were all detained for educating underprivileged children. They were later sentenced to four years in prison for this offense. The following month, the Iranian parliament published a draft Islamic penal code requiring the death penalty for all apostates, a term that strictly applies to Baha'is and anyone who converts away from uh, rigid Islam. In, on May 14, 2008, seven members of the Baha'i National Coordinating Group were arrested. This is reminiscent of a mass disappearance and assumed murder of all members of the National Spiritual Assembly of Baha'is in Iran back in August of 1980. The seven arrested in May are still being held without any charge or access to attorneys. In just the last two weeks, a number of Baha'i families were targeted with acts of arson. This is government-sponsored persecution, and we in the Congress should not be silent as Iran sets up the mechanism to ethnically cleanse its Baha'i minority, totaling over 250,000 human beings. This bipartisan resolution, which I introduced with Congressman Andrews, condemns the government of Iran for its persistent repression of Baha'is and lack of due process afforded to this minority. Our resolution calls upon Iran to immediately release three Baha'i youths and to reject the draft Islamic Penal Code, requiring the death penalty for all apostates. Mr. Speaker, my district is also home to the headquarters of the North American Assembly of Baha'is. The son of the faith's founder laid the cornerstone on the Baha'i Temple in Wilmette, Illinois, now basically a de facto symbol of the North Shore and our commitment to diversity and tolerance. Would that this view be shared by the Iranian government. For the life of me, I do not understand why they attack Baha'is. The Baha'i faith teaches that Moses and Jesus and Muhammad are all respected teachers who added to the faith of our times. The Baha'is embody acceptance and tolerance and accommodation. They have a faith which renders them incapable of being a threat to a government. So it is up to us to speak for them. It's up to us to hold up a mirror to the Iranian government to show it as a vicious and cruel state. We have seen this movie before, but they have worn other uniforms in other countries. It is my hope that we can make this call to action to join with the European Parliament. We can help change the ending of this. Hundreds of thousands of Baha'is may one day be able to sleep well in future days knowing that the great democracies from across the seas in Europe and America watch over them. I urge the adoption of this Kirk Andrews resolution and mightily thank the chairman of the committee, Ms. Ross Lightnin, and the chairman of the subcommittee, Ms. Shabbat, for help bringing this before America's parliament and calling real attention to hope avert what could be a new crime of the century. Welcome back to A Baha'i Perspective. That was Congressman Kirk of Illinois speaking on the House floor on July 30, 2008, 
in support of his resolution number 1008 condemning Iran for its persecution of the Baha'is. Now I'll play my interview with La Jamaya, a Baha'i who started out being a teacher, then discovered the performer within her while working at the Baha'i UN office in New York, and is back to being a teacher in Arizona again. I started the interview by asking La Jamaya where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I grew up in Muskegon Heights, Michigan, uh, which was on the shores of Lake Michigan, and a very small town next to Muskegon, Michigan. So, you know, it sounds like a suburb. I would not call it a suburb. It was just a smaller town. I grew up in a family, in an extended family. I was an only child. I had, in our family, four cousins that lived with us. So... I didn't feel like an only child. I I personally don't think I grew up with the general mentality of an only child. Sometimes my cousins will tell me that differently. (laughs) But it was a small town, very distinctly a black-white separation, where I did not personally feel that I experienced and felt any um, direct racial discrimination. What was your religious upbringing like? I was brought up in the Baptist church, and my parents were uh, very devout Christians, and we went to church every Sunday, and during the week, the prayer meeting, or usher board meeting, or choir rehearsal, and I took part in all of the various holiday celebrations, so that's actually where I, I guess I could say I got my start in terms of presentation. Mm-hmm. because I took part in the um, Easter programs and the Christmas programs and sang in the choir. And my parents were always given to singing themselves, both my birth mother and my second mother. My birth mother died when I was 12 years old. But our family was always one that was geared toward the church. started with Sunday school in the morning on Sundays, then right into... Um, service at 11 o'clock, and generally we might be out around one thirty or 2, and if there was an afternoon program at 3, we were back. Or didn't go home and just stayed for dinner. <laughs> so it was definitely where I found community. Now, what was high school like? Oh, <laughs> high school was my life period. Mm-hmm. I was very much into school. I would say from, well, from grade school on up, I remember my uncle calling me Grandma. And it was because it was felt that I was an, an old mind and a young body, I guess you would put it. You were like five going on 40? I, I guess you could say that, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so by the time I got to high school, my mom passed when I, was, when I was 12 years old. So that was right before I went into high school. But by the time I got to high school, I was one of those kind of students who opened school in the morning and closed it down in the evening mm-hmm. and in everything. <laughs> I guess worked to excel, not that it was easy because I worked at it. So high school was a time that I can look back on and say, that was a good time in my life. And it it laid a lot of the foundation. Just my my family life, my home life, my school life. And I can look back and see a lot of me then in me now. After high school, I went to college in Michigan, Western Michigan University, and I graduated with a teaching degree, 
began teaching school. Um, after I graduated, I moved to uh, Detroit, Michigan, and I taught school there, high school and then junior high school. And I only taught for five years, and then I was out of teaching for a while. I moved from Detroit to Texas, and at that time, I began working for an oil company in Texas as an administrative assistant. It was there that I discovered the Baha'i Faith. I actually um, moved to Texas as a part of another religious organization and became disenfranchised with that. Was that a Christian-based organization? Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't have to name the organization, but what was it about it that uh, disillusioned you? It was no longer the answer to the questions that I had. And what were those questions? Uh, I guess you could say, what's it all about? And when I found the Baha'i Faith, I found the basis of what I had been brought up with, Mm -hmm. and that was a love that embraced all and that left no one out. And it was a renewal of spirit, I guess I could say. And one, one that brought me back to me, and it brought me back to what my parents brought me up to believe. So I was introduced to the Baha'i Faith in Houston, Texas. And it was at a time in my life when I, I just was disillusioned mm-hmm. with myself, with other people, and felt that I was really lacking in spirituality. And I, I always say that uh, circumstances bring us to the point of being open to new knowledge, to new awareness, to greater depth. And that's what happened for me. Mm-hmm. At the time, I, as I said, I was living in Houston. I was working for an oil company, and I was also involved with a multi-level marketing company. And the people who were my upline in that company were Baha'is. And every time I went to a meeting in their business establishment, there were pictures of the Baha'i Houses of Worship on the walls. And this one particular night, when circumstances had brought me to the point of literally to my knees and in tears prior to going to this meeting and asking God to change my life, in leaving their establishment that night, I asked, I wish you would tell me about this sometime. And that was all they needed because they, (laughs) prior to that, had never, you know, pushed anything on me. Mm -hmm. And I had had the bounty of hearing uh, the husband on the radio one day coming home from work in an interview about the Baha'i faith. And he was just saying some things that I could, I was just nodding my, here I am driving down the expressway, nodding my head, "Mm mm-hmm, yes, I believe that. (laughs) (laughs) So... When it came to my own personal little soul-searching and Pentecostal experience, at a time when I could hear, I was able to ask and to receive. And I was invited to a fireside, Fireside. informal gathering, and I started attending firesides. That was in November of 1979. So I started going to firesides, and by... February of 1980, not that I had known it before then, but I was ready to, to actually declare myself as a Baha'i and say, yes, I believe Baha'u'llah is who he says he is. And it, it was like 
wow, this makes so much sense. And I always remember my spiritual father, who has now passed on, but he always said, don't believe a word I tell you. You go and read and study for yourself. And that has basically become (laughs) what I share with people when I tell them about the Baha'i faith. Because he said, you know, the writings tell us that we're all endowed with the ability to see the truth for ourselves. It's like I knew this all along. But then to have it reinforced with the reality of a faith that was right there in front of me, and then I could say, yes, Baha'u'llah is God's messenger for this day. It was awesome. Now, Lajamaya, do you feel comfortable explaining what it was going on in your life at that time when you became a Baha'i that, like, opened you up? Well, I was disillusioned with my own personal relationships. I was disillusioned with people that I was hanging with. And back then, this was 1979, it wasn't necessarily all the good life. In being caught up in things that had taken me away from prayer, I was at a point where I had not been able to pray for a long time, simply because I knew that the things that I was doing were not right, Mm. were not righteous, I should put it that way. So when I was able to say to myself or to say in prayer, God, please change my life, well, let me, let me put, say this. When I was in high school, I grew up with, of course, the Lord's Prayer. And this was from a small child. You learn the Lord's Prayer, you learn the 23rd Psalms, you sing in the choir, you work on the usher board. When I was in high school, I dis- discovered the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there's hatred, let me so love. Where there's injury, pardon, doubt, faith, despair, hope, darkness, light, sadness, joy. I learned that, and it became, for me, along with the Lord's Prayer, my nightly prayer. So I had held on to that for so many years that when I found myself caught up in activities that that were not proper to my upbringing and that were means of escapism, I was able to pull back out of a desire to change my life out of a desire to reconnect spiritually with God. And it was, uh, I, I think it was divinely inspired that I had been led to this couple because they indeed became my inspiration. Uh, they're, they're the kind of people that if you're around them, you feel their warmth and their magnetism, and they make you feel so welcomed and so appreciated. And that was I, that was what I needed at that time time in my life. And what happened after you became a Baha'i? Oh, gosh. It was like I was on fast track. <laughs> Literally, on a fast track. I was surrounded by people who were showering me with love and encouragement, and I was confronted with material to read and to study, and some of it I just had to say, oh, this is too much, I can't, it was overwhelming in some, in some aspects. But I began to read at my own pace, 
And I began to pray again at my own pace. And I began to go to more and varied firesides in different people's homes, just becoming reacquainted with people. Because as I said, I had become disillusioned in my own relationships Mm. with people. And knowing, of course, that you can't put all of your faith in people because people are people and we all have our shortcomings. But I began to grow spiritually. I began to develop a new sense of who I was and to regain a sense of, I guess, self-confidence. Because I I always feel like I've been a fairly confident person, but there have been times when the confidence has wavered. And in becoming a Baha'i, I began to look to what my talents were and to think about, okay, how am I supposed to use them? I actually went to school to be a teacher and had been teaching. When I moved to Houston, I began working for an oil company. When I left Houston in 1985, I moved to New York. I moved there to work for the USUN Baha'i office. I was there for a little over a year, and it was just a wonderful experience in the USUN Baha'i office. And I left there to go back to my hometown to spend time with my family because my father's health was failing. And I was there long enough to reestablish a relationship with, with my parents, with my father. In 1987, I went to Greenacre Baha'i School, which is located in Elliott, Maine. I was serving there as the educational coordinator, so it was my responsibility to deal with programming and registration. People from all over the world would visit Greenacre Baha'i School because it was an opportunity to expand their knowledge of uh, the teachings of Baha'u'llah. It was their opportunity to fellowship with uh, other Baha'is as well as other non-Baha'is. So it, for me, was an opportunity to grow in terms of communion and fellowship and knowledge of my worldwide Baha'i community. So I served there from 1987 to 1989 when they began the renovation of the buildings there to make it a year-round facility. Prior to leaving my hometown and my father's passing, well, shortly after I left, my father passed shortly after I arrived at Greenacre. And it was such a, um, a moving experience for me because I ended up going back home for his funeral, of course. But prior to leaving my hometown to go to Greenacre, I remember my father saying to me, he wondered if he was ill, so ill for such a long time, if he was, he was experiencing all of this pain because he didn't accept my faith. Now, I became a Baha'i in 1980. My father died in 1987. And they had seen a tremendous change in me over the years. They had seen me gain a greater sense of purpose in my life. And even to go from a young college graduate to a middle-aged woman who moved from drinking to no alcohol, 
from smoking to no smoking to having some sense of purpose and direction and carrying on uh, a mature conversation with them. He, he saw the change that the Baha'i faith had fostered in me. May I, Elijah Mike, may I ask a question? Mm-hmm. It seems that it was that somewhere between you growing up and being who you were growing up, and then before you becoming Baha'i, you went through some downward spiral, if that's an accurate description, and if it is, what do you think caused that transition to occur before you became a Baha'i? I don't think it was irresponsibility. I think it was searching mm-hmm. and a gigantic effort to be aware of who I was. When, when I was involved with, I was involved with the Black Christian Nationalist Church. In becoming involved with the Black Christian Nationalist Church, I felt I was searching for my heritage. I was searching for a greater purpose in religion. Mm. So that's always been my quest. And in being involved with the Black Christian Nationalist Church, it, it was, it is a Pan-Africanist movement. So in essence, a separatist movement. That's what no longer answered my questions in terms of, I guess, oneness and unity. Because when I would pray uh, that prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, to me, that was the essence of unity. I was looking for two things in one. And in finding the African-American heritage, I felt I had found a deeper religious basis. But I got to the point where my own inner spirituality was speaking out to me, or maybe I should say speaking inward to me, to let me know there's more mm-hmm. than this. And that's why I say my circumstances got me to the point of being able to hear the message of Baha'u'llah, the unity, the oneness. It's like when I moved away from the organization of the Black Christian Nationalist Church, I guess I was kind of in a state of depression mm-hmm. because I had let go of something that for several years had been the basis of my life. And it's, it's that being brought down to that point that enabled me to, to hear the message of Baha'u'llah because there, there was a void there that needed to be filled. So I interrupted your story about going to your father's funeral. and Oh, I was going to share with you something he said to me before I left to go to Greenacre, I had been saying prayers for my parents in, in hopes that they would become, well, more aware of the Baha'i faith, more open to the Baha'i faith. Like I said, they're very staunch Christians, very good people, very kind people. But I wanted them to know Baha'u'llah. I wanted them to know what I had found. And I had shared this in conversation. And my father told me prior to leaving to go to Greenacre, that he'd had a dream. And he said in the dream there was this elderly gentleman in a robe standing at the top of a stairway with his hand outstretched to him. I said, Daddy, that sounds like Abdu'l-Baha. And I brought his picture into his bedroom. He was on dialysis and at home. And I brought this picture of Abdu'l-Baha 
to the bedroom, which I had never shown to him before. I showed it to him. He just kind of reached out for it. Mm. And I set it on the dresser, and I just left it there. And I left, I just left that picture for him. And to me, that was my confirmation that in some way there, I, that my prayers were being answered, basically, that, that there was some new knowledge of the Baha'i faith for my dad. He actually passed away in 1987. Mm-hmm. And when I returned to uh, Green Acre, about a month after I returned, I had this dream of my dad. And I was sitting next to his coffin. Here he is, stretched out in this coffin, fine-looking gentleman, and he sat up and he looked at me, radiant. Now, I had seen him in the coffin when I went back home, of course, non-radiant. But he looked at me and he said, everything is all right. And that was all I needed. I knew at that point that my father knew the essence of the Baha'i faith. And it's like that in itself has just been a bully for me throughout my life. And that was in 1987. For the benefit of our listeners, Abdu'l-Baha is the son of the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah. And Abdu'l-Baha had come to this country in 1912 for nine months. And we have quite a few photographs of him that are a treasure for the Baha'is. Last we left you, you were at Greenacre. Yes, I was at Greenacre, and it was a wonderful time in my life. I was at Greenacre from 1987 to 1989. And as I said, it, it was a wonderful opportunity to meet people from all over the world to be of service. When I left there in 1989, I actually stayed in the area. I actually remained in Maine and worked at the University of New Hampshire in the Women's Commission and ended up being a part of the Baha'i community of Elliott. When I left there in 1991, it was because I got married and moved to Colorado. So I went from Michigan to Texas, from Texas to New York, from New York to Michigan, from Michigan to Maine, from Maine to Colorado. Over the course of that time, I developed a one-woman show entitled The Black Experience, A Cry for World Peace. And that took me to many different places and, again, gave me the opportunity to touch the lives of many different people. When I was at Green Acre, I had the bounty of meeting a couple who were my benefactors in a travel teaching trip that took me to Trinidad and Tobago. And I was able to share the message of the oneness of humanity through this presentation that I did with communities throughout those islands of Trinidad and Tobago. And I actually developed the presentation while I was working in New York City at the USUN Baha'i office, and I think it was because I just kind of got hungry for something artistic, and it was the International Year of Peace, and I wanted to find something that I could contribute to this whole concept of peace, using what I perceived to be my talents to do that. 
And that's one of the things that the Universal House of Justice, which is the um, international governing body of the Baha'i faith, was asking us to do at that time, to see what is it that we could do personally. And fortunately, because I was so hungry for something artistic, I drew from my background of theater and put together a one-woman show. And that is entitled The Black Experience of Cry for World Peace. And actually performed it for the first time while I lived in New York at uh, Mercy College. I, I remember uh, it was for Black History Month. So since then, I've had the opportunity to travel throughout the United States worldwide sharing that one-woman show which fosters the unity of humanity. I find that it's, it's one gift that I can provide. Can you describe for us the show a little bit? Oh, yeah. It's a collage of poetry, prose, drama, and song, and it depicts the African-American experience from slavery, and it emphasizes the oneness of the human family. So I like to think of it as an experiential happening for any audience, whether it be young, middle school, high school, college, adult, community, whatever but an experience in which people can feel the pain but also move beyond the pain to the expectancy and the joy of what we can achieve as a unit. How long did you do the show for? Well, actually, I still do the show whenever I have the opportunity. Oh, that's great. So the very first time was in um, 1986. That's when I was in New York. And the last time I did it was last year. I'm, um, I guess, artistically inclined, I could put it that way. I love drama. I like to sing. And in uh, 1995, I had the bounty of doing a cassette, which, 1994, a cassette. And uh, my objective at that time was to provide something to the Baha'i community that would promote memorization of the creative word that would afford some enjoyment of the creative word put to music and spoken. So I created a cassette entitled Intono My Servant, and along with a dear Baha'i friend in the Georgia area by the name of Lacan Parsons, and he created all of the music for it. Together, we created a piece of work that has been used over the years by Baha'i individuals for their own personal meditation, for their devotional services or Baha'i gatherings. For me, it's another opportunity to contribute to the spiritual growth of the Baha'i community and non-Baha'i community, because I've had people who are not Baha'is who have bought or received the CD, it's now a CD, as, as a gift, and who feel that they draw spiritually from it Mm. on a continuous basis. And even friends who said they played it for loved ones when they're at a point of illness and passing and have found solace in it. You moved to Colorado. I moved to Colorado, beautiful Colorado. Mm -hmm. I had never lived in the mountains before. I lived in New York, but not in the mountains. But when I moved to Colorado, it was like, oh, This is gorgeous. One of the most beautiful states I've lived in. 
when I left Colorado, I moved to Arizona, which is where I am now. So this is where I've ended up, and I've become quite acclimated to the desert. (laughs) (laughs) I'm literally in the desert Mm. between Phoenix and Tucson in a little town called Eloy, next door to Desert Rose Baha'i Institute. I've found, again, a way of being of service here at Desert Rose, but I also have gone back to my original profession, which was teaching school. So now I am, again, a high school teacher in the small town of Eloy and loving it. And I, no doubt, had I been teaching for 30 or 35 years, I would be burned out by now. But this is, like, totally rejuvenating. (laughs) And what are you teaching? I'm teaching English. And it all started out as just substituting and doing so with a feeling of wanting to be of service. When you get to be as old as I'm going to be next week, you want to be of service. That's where I am in my life right now. So it's not so much I've got to work to put bread on on the table, yes, but it's beyond that Mm -hmm. in terms of what I do. I feel very blessed to know that I'll be turning 64 next month. And I know that over the course of time, I have come to realize that I'm here for a purpose. We're all here for a purpose. And that's the message that I have to share with the young people that I work with every day. And it's in an effort to help them realize that a part of their journey is to find that purpose and to use it for the betterment of humanity. And that's not always easy for the young people that I work with. Why do you think that's so? Because it's a small town, and it's in many ways uh, below poverty level. One of the things that I'm hoping I can help my students do is to dream and to see their potential. La Jamaya, tell me about your name. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my name was a gift. And it was a gift from a fellow teacher. Well, I haven't thought about this in a long time. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Back in 1967, when I was first began teaching, and uh, one of the teachers at the school was a writer, and he had published a poem in what was then called Black World. And I think it had previously been known as the Negro Digest, one of the Johnson publications. And he had written a poem entitled uh, Black Madonna. And he gave me a copy of the poem, and on it he wrote a little note to La Jemaya, who certainly fits the image. And he said the, the name means Black Mother. And that was in 1967. I kept that all of that time. But I began to use the name La Jemaya in uh, the late 70s. And in 1980, I legally changed my name to La Jemaya. And that's, when, when I perform, that's the only name I use is La Jemaya. But my students, I, I ask my students to call me Miss La Jemaya because I like the name and I think it's a challenge for them. So thank you for asking about that. Yeah. Now, if somebody wanted to contact you, who is interested in having you perform the black experience, a cry for world peace, Mm -hmm. how would they get in contact with you? 
they could send me an email. Okay. I don't have a website. I have been chastised for that for years, but I'm just not that computer literate. Sure. I just need to have somebody do a website for me, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so if anybody's listening who knows how to do a website and wants to do a website for me, let me know. But I can be reached via email. That address is Unific Soul. U-N-I-S, as in Frank, I-C, S-O-U-L, at AOL.com. Unific Soul at AOL.com. Mm-hmm. If anyone is interested in, um, in Tono, my servant, the CD, it can be purchased through Justice St. Rain Special Ideas, and that's special-ideas.com. All right. Well, Lajamaya, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Warren. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Lajamaya. After closing, I will play two selections from Lajamaya's CD called Intone My Servants, which can be found at specialideas.com. That's special-ideas.com. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Spirit of life.
at the gate of the garden some stand and look within but do not care to enter others step inside behold its beauty but do not penetrate far still others encircle this garden inhaling the fragrance flowers and having enjoyed its full beauty pass out again by the same game but there are Becoming intoxicated by the splendor of what they behold, remain for life hid in the garden.
hands and bless the Lord at all times. In the presence of His holiness, spirits are filled. When the praises go up, the blessings will come down. So with our praises, we will dance and sing and let you know our God is real. To end indifference 
No human rights can break us from our shell Cause true freedom is in submission to his commandments And say, who needs them? But we're all wishing for something more mysterious than them and us His lips have disappeared from acting serious And watching all his numbers rise and fall he walks on by me singing in the subway And he plugs his ears, won't listen to me calling out that True freedom is in submission to his commandments We say, who needs them? But we're all wishing for something more remarkable than serious. Nothing matters You stay in your cocoon to save your wings And you double bar the door to your apartment But how did you think that could keep you safe from anything? True freedom is in submission to his commandments And you say, who needs them? But we're out wishing for something more mysterious Than them and us Submission to his commandments And you say, who needs them? But we're out wishing for something more remarkable Than material True freedom in submission to his commandments And you say, who needs them? But we're out wishing for something more fulfilling Than just chilling this is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.